Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. This morning we're looking at the triumphal entry. It's called the triumphal entry, but actually people um, were making their way into Jerusalem. It was a pilgrimage period, uh, preparing for the Passover, and Jesus, uh, I guess you could say, turned it into a triumphal entry because of his presence. And let's uh, read about that. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21 and the first 11 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on the cloaks. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred or literally shaken or quaked, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Matthew immediately spotlights something that's very significant, and that is he spotlights Jesus' foreknowledge when he asks his two disciples to untie the donkey and foal and bring them, and then also his foreknowledge when he predicts that the owner or whoever should question what they're doing will give their assent and approve and recognize that this is a legitimate thing. This is something that should be done. But in addition to Jesus' foreknowledge, also Matthew identifies or specifies Jesus' fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. So his action is an intentional fulfillment of words that were prophesied years before and that became a part of the fund of expectation of the Jews regarding the Messianic king that they awaited. This king in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 is described 
the translations vary because the two words can be rendered in slightly different ways, but they're very important words. The English Standard Version renders them um, righteous and saving or victorious. The significant thing is that this king is a triumphant king. Uh, this king we would think of as a victorious king because what he brings, what his presence bestows is goodness and righteousness and justice. People who have suffered or people in need now have a king who will see to their needs and he's able. This is a, this is a wonderful king that is pictured here. And that's very important to appreciate because here this king, we're told, is victorious and righteous, but then specifically we're told is humble. This king is humble and then that humility is pictured in the sense that he is seated on a donkey not a steed, but a beast of burden. This is a curious king because we don't often see kings like this. A king who is good. A king for the people. A king that is virtuous. A king whose presence brings blessing, whose power is not used selfishly to his benefit, but to the others, to better them. Where does this prophecy originate? Well, it originates with a prophet. But where does the prophecy of a prophet originate? Where does it come from? We say this is a prophet of God because the prophet speaks the words, the message, conveys the teaching of God. It's born of God's will. It's inspired, we say, by the very spirit of God. So God's Messiah, his king, is an embodiment of what God desires and wills. It coincides, it corresponds to what God would will, what God would have happen. It is an expression of what God wants to see take place, this Messiah, this King. And it is, in fact, in Zechariah, a pervasive theme that the King is Yahweh, God himself, Come to Jerusalem. 
So all of these things converge when we think of John 3.16, which is maybe the very first verse of the Bible that we encounter or hear or take to heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, his only begotten son. The will of God. Jesus is the expression, the embodiment. When we think of his birth, we say the incarnation. Zechariah says he's the king coming. He is the will of God in the flesh. And God's will is manifest in humble ways, in humility. This king that has been long awaited comes seated on a donkey. Jesus just doesn't feel, fulfill prophecy. What I want us to appreciate is Jesus behaves in character, in character. He isn't just, well, I've got to make this look good. How do I make people realize that I'm the coming king, so I got to get on a donkey? No, it's his character. In fact, the very nature of this king is in the character of humility, of lowliness. Not above, coming, seated on a donkey. The character of Jesus, or what we call humility, is characteristic of the very heart of God. And it probably seems strange to say that God is humble but I believe God is humble. And maybe I ought to say it right here because I think, I think humility is not something so much that we do is, is as it is something that we observe and describe and recognize. Because there's power present that is not manifest in the service of itself, but in the service of others. And we in our own pride know that that power is something that we would probably succumb to using just for ourselves. And when we see it used for others, it kind of astonishes us. And we grope for a word that's lowly, it's humble, which is what lowly means. In Matthew 11, chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus invites us to follow him and become his disciples. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me. Because let me just stop there and go back a little bit. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. So what is he, a barker at a carnival? Is he some huckster? Hey, 
you, come over here. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me. You have so many choices. Why should I take your yoke and learn from you? All these other offers are so appealing. Jesus says, because I'm gentle and humble. I'm gentle and humble, not just to get you to take my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. I didn't add those words. Those are his words. I am gentle and humble in heart. My humility is authentic. My, my humility is who I am. What you regard as humility is my character. So if you take my yoke on you and you learn from me, it would be just downright broken and unfixable. If as a result, we prove to be not humbled. But arrogant. Self-absorbed. Rude. Selfish. And it's stunning to look at the church today. I don't want to quibble about what is the church, but what we call the church, what we think of the church, what in discourse, what in public conversation, or even conception is the church. The church is the church because it identifies with Christ. And people think of the church as identified with Christ. And the question is, do they think of the church as gentle and humble in heart? Or do they characterize the church? Not falsely, but by, per their perception, do they perceive the church to be other than the heart of Jesus Christ, gentle and humble, full of opinion that creates division, full of finger-pointing or superiority and pride. Follow me. Listen to me. Learn from me. Take my yoke on you. Why? Well, you got to know the truth. Because I'm gentle and humble in heart. You got to know that. It's essential, you see. It's vital. Because it it goes to my heart. It's my identity. 
Matthew 11 is interesting because just before Jesus invited us to follow him and learn from him, in verse 27, he floors us with this titanic revelation. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now, he says that more than once, and most notably, we associate it not only in John 3, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, as it said, but 13, when Jesus divests himself and takes on a towel and begins to wash his disciples' feet, he says, all things have been given unto me which in Jewish thought is a very powerful expression be, because it is a depiction of handing over possession and then, in a sense, ownership. In, in, even in Jewish um, agency, to authorize someone to fully with plenipotentiary power. I love that word. I just had to say that. Plenipotentiary power, which is all power. Full power to act independently on behalf of another. So Jesus has all the power to fully represent God, the creator of all, and all has been vested into his hands. And he says that in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 11. All things. You see, that's exclusive and inclusive. It, it, it doesn't leave anything out. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. So there's a, probably more packed into that, but the sense of complete trust. And anyone to whom the Son, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. So come, come over Take my yoke on you. Learn from me. Oh, well, what, what do you know that I don't know? What do you got that I don't got? Why do I need you? Well, he's already set this up. No one knows the Son but the Father, and no one knows the Father but the Son. And the Son... to whom he reveals the Father, to that person, that person knows the Father. This is full plenipotentiary power. I used that phrase in my doctoral dissertation. I loved it, loved writing it, because I know nothing of full plenipotentiary power. But in a sense, all that power we don't even know or recognize in Jesus. 
Do you know why? We call it humility. We call it humility. Do you know what exposes humility? To discover that someone we thought was weak or timid or not worth our time, unimportant, someone unimportant, someone that doesn't throw their weight around, someone that's gentle or kind, good, tender-hearted, merciful, honest. Some of us don't even give people like that a time of day. And you know why we don't notice them? Because they aren't throwing their power around. They're gentle and humble in heart. See, we don't even realize that real power is the power to be gentle and kind. But we don't see it unless we see the power. We just see weakness. We see people pushed around. And do you realize that grace, grace doesn't win every battle. Grace loses. Because grace takes it. But grace wins in the end. You know why? Because we have a gracious God. Even when we have to take it on the chin in this life because we're humble and gentle in heart. We win in the end because of the resurrection. And we don't even know who Jesus is and the power that he has until the resurrection. He dies in shame until the resurrection. And then it's unveiled. We realize his true identity. He's the king. Acclaim the glory of the king who came riding on a donkey, humble and gentle in heart, stuff this world doesn't even care about, doesn't value, looks right past it. All hail the route of the royal king. It may surprise us to learn that psychological studies of humility have mushroomed. You may not like psychology. You may not like behavioralism or the science into human behavior. But it does some interesting work. And I think it's fascinating that it's studying humility. And do you know why? Because we've got a problem as people in this world and in this nation, maybe even in our own families and in our own mirror. There's a problem and they see it. And it's called pride and arrogance and selfishness and greed. There's this surge in studies to figure out what's wrong with us because we lack empathy. We crave admiration. It's all about me. And this has been coming on. There were books about me, 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 and the me generation 10, 15 years ago. 
And scientists started saying, what's going on? So they're studying humility. Don't you find that fascinating? I do. I think it's a good thing. And you know what? Humility, they find, is made of three parts. Let me describe them to you. And, and this is kind of academies, you know? That's like a foreign language. It doesn't, but it's very densely packed. Here, you'll know what I'm, what I'm referring to. An accurate self-perception. So humility begins or is a part of an accurate self-perception. Do you see yourself clearly? Or do you, you know, if, are you de- if we're deceived, then, you know, why doesn't everybody love me kind of outlook? I'm so great. I'm perfect in every way. I'm just so beautiful. I don't understand why everybody is blind to it. I, I would say that's not an accurate self-perception. Secondly, a modest self-portrayal, a modest self-portrayal. Yeah, you don't have to be the center of everything. Hey, don't be doing what you're doing. I'm here. Give me your attention. Give me your likes. Give me your thumbs up. I need this. Why am I not getting more? What's wrong with me? You know, it's one. And the third thing is an other-oriented, other-oriented relational stance. I know that's, like I said, academies, but in other words, when I think about my place in the world, it's not just all about me. It's other, other-oriented. I'm aware of others. I'm sensitive to others. I care about others. Now, Accurate self-perception. See your strengths, but see your weaknesses. Um, Modest self-portrayal. It isn't all about me, and I don't have to be the center of attention, and I don't have to be necessarily noticed to still count or be doing meaningful things. I don't need the applause of everybody. Um... And then other oriented relational stance. But you see, all these traits that they're discovering, they're the brick and mortar of the Bible. This, this is stuff we, we should know. This should be a part of who we are. This is stuff right out of God's word. Facing our sin, uh, correction, uh, growing. Repentance. Repentance should be a part of every day because that's part of growing. It's a part of seeing ourselves clearly and making course corrections and say, I can do better. Okay. And then modest self-portrayal. Jesus taught the Bible teaches from front to back the fact that we, well, Jesus said all who exalt themselves exalt myself, right? I don't know quite how to do that, but we'll be humbled. 
which will be made low. The very word in Greek that's, that's translated humble just means it's the word low. And in some places it's used low in contrast to high. And those who humble themselves, Jesus said, will be exalted. And then other-oriented, well, that's academies for love. You see, so to realize we're sinners, um, to not care about ourselves, not to belittle ourselves, but just not be full of ourselves, and then to be oriented toward others. This is just the heart of the gospel. What they miss is the humble king. They don't have a hero. Is Jesus your hero? Is he your messianic king seated on a donkey? Because you know that he stooped to do something important for others. And that other is you and me. He divested himself of his power, although we didn't know it. He suffered and went to the cross. But there was power, and he was raised from the dead by that power over death. That's the power that he's poured out on his church in the Holy Spirit. We don't have to humble ourselves. What we need to do is follow Jesus, our hero, and be like him. Admire the power that he puts into loving others. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your life and in mine. He is. What is the fruit of the Spirit? You look at it collectively and you say, man, that's humility. Love, joy, peace, patience. People who are humble, and I had to discover this, they learn to laugh at themselves. They're not such a big deal. When you, you can access stuff online, you can see a shot of the earth from some satellite that took a picture of the earth from like the ring of Saturn. The earth looks like a microscopic pinprick. So what's that make you and me? You know who makes you something? God does. You matter because he who is of gentle and humble heart thinks you're something. The problem is when we think we're something, and we don't take that love and think others are something because he thinks we're something. We must walk his royal route. We must love his royal heart. I want to just encourage you. I wish I knew. I, I struggled this week. I wanted to make this so plain and clear I don't know how to put it into a formula, but I would, I would challenge you, encourage you, I would desire you 
to think about making love Jesus, reflect upon who he is and what he's done for you, and then want to be like him, want to follow him, want to look like him. We call it being Christ-like, inspiring Christ-likeness, because our lives are breathing the life of Christ. So make that one purpose of your life to look like him, to love like him, to be kind. Will you, will you fail? Yes, you will. <laughs> Miserably. And then you'll breathe in the grace of God because he died for that very thing. So you could just pop right up, let it go because it's not all about your failures. It's about getting up and loving and being kind and being gracious and getting, regaining your reality, which is Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for you that you didn't have to pay a plum nickel for. And it's that grace that reminds you that you're the apple of his eye. Not because you're the apple of his eye, but because he loves you. And that's the way we ought to live our lives, in the knowledge that he loves us so. And that that love ought to characterize our lives. So whether it's up or down, east, west, north, south, sideways, to live for him is something that we just keep striving to do because we know it's the most beautiful, most important thing in the world, that our future is secure so we can take the hits. We can bounce up and keep loving. We can forgive those who don't forgive us. We can laugh at ourselves and keep going. I encourage you, I'm going to quit, although I feel like I'm just getting started, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, write it down and read it today. In fact, he even says, you know, don't be caught up in yourself. Think about others. Jesus did that. That's what he says. He, Jesus did that. He emptied himself. He who was equal with God, he humbled himself, became a, a lowly slave, went to the cross, and yet his name is the name that is above all names. Every knee will bow to him. But he did all the bowing that really had to be done. Read that. Reflect upon it. Think about it. And then another passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25 talks about Jesus suffering and Peter says we got to do this too and again some beautiful motivating things that remind us that we have this incredible nature that has been poured into us that we call the Holy Spirit the very nature of God it is that very spirit that will raise us from the dead and will empower us as the children of God, a new race, a new people of God, founded on that king who rode on a donkey in humility to the cross. God bless you. Let's sing.